Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Can you imagine a world without a war? I can, and it's in the future. Today we're going to talk about that on the program. How many wars are in the world today and when that time will come when wars will be no more? Well, we've got an interesting program today. Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Itamar Marcus, Dr. Don DeYoung, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and of course, a look at the book at the end of the program. Rick, let's get started with our first, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have got our expert in geopolitical affairs, Ken Timmerman. He's an author. He's an analyst. You can find out more about him by going to his website, which is KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we're going to talk about the Middle East in just a second, but let's start in Russia. And in a press conference, Vladimir Putin said there will be no peace in Ukraine until Russia's goals are achieved. Surprise, surprise. Uh, This is Putin's annual press conference. He does this marathon event. Uh, He did not do it last year because Russia uh, was at that point experiencing some pretty severe difficulties on the battlefield in Ukraine. But this year it's on and uh, he welcomed so-called journalists in Russia. I don't think that there were any hard questions from what I can see. He also allowed school children to join the conversation. They called him their favorite president. And he announced, of course, that he is going to run for re-election next year. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Uh, One thing he did say that was rather interesting is that he had no plans for a second mobilization of troops, that Russia had plenty of soldiers now on the battlefield in Ukraine. He said there were 617,000 Russian soldiers uh, in the Ukraine theater, uh, including around 244,000 conscripts. So he said, we don't need any more conscripts. We don't need to raise more troops through a draft. And the draft has been very unpopular in Russia. So that's important. Now, as to no peace before Russia achieves its goals, his goals are neutralization of Ukraine. Uh, In other words, no NATO in Ukraine. He said this before the invasion. He said it during the invasion. This hasn't changed. He talks about the denazification of the Ukrainian government, which has been a mystery to many people in the West. Uh, I, I don't know how many Nazis are in the Ukrainian government, but this is a kind of bugbear uh, that the Russians have dragged out from their World War II memories. And, and I'm not quite sure what it means, except that he intends by victory to replace Zelensky and Zelensky's government. And I think that has been his goal from the beginning. But those two things, Rick, are not a surprise. And the U.S. has known this uh, long before the invasion. And those two goals, by the way, are things that could have been achieved through negotiation. I'm not saying that Zelensky should have resigned or the U.S. should have pushed him to resign. But nevertheless, they could have negotiated the extent of NATO's advance into Ukraine. And the Biden administration has steadfastly refused to do that, led by Victoria Newland at the State Department. She's number two now at the State Department. She has been a big Ukraine hawk, and she's been that way for many years. She was behind the overthrow of a pro-Russian government in 2014 already that was elected in Ukraine. So she's been around for ages. She hates Putin. She is doing her very best to steer the Biden administration to take a hard line towards Russia. And with people like her in charge of the State Department, I don't see much hope for a negotiated solution, although that is the only thing that can bring an end to this war. Uh, There will be no military victory on the ground as far as I can see. 
Ken, we've talked about it before. One of the keys to Putin's success is his ability to be ruthless. And we've talked about sometimes those that go up against Putin accidentally falling out of a window or off of a balcony or different things like that. And uh, this has happened again. Probably the main opposition leader has disappeared, hasn't he? Yeah, Putin has no uh, tolerance for critics, uh, and he doesn't seem to have much of a sense of humor. Uh, Alexei Navalny, this opposition leader you're talking about, made an amazing film a couple of years ago when he was still uh, free to roam about called Putin's Palace. And he used drones to overfly this palace on the on the Black Sea, just north of uh, Sochi. And amazing, amazing place, a billion dollar palace. He talked about Putin's corruption. And some of it was just laugh out loud funny. Putin does not have a sense of humor. Navalny was jailed uh, two years ago, I believe, uh, on a 19 year sentence. And just one week ago, he disappeared from the Moscow prison where he had been uh, interned for two years and was sent to an unknown location. His spokesperson doesn't know where they are. There have been questions to Putin's press person, Dmitry Peskov. He, he said, well, it's not our job to track prisoners. Ho, ho. They know exactly where he is. And they probably sent him off to a labor camp in what used to be uh, known as those, those wonderful uh, gulags in Siberia. Well, Ken, one of the major takeaways that I see coming out of this war is the highlighting of these alliances, the strengthening of these alliances between places like Russia and China, also Russia and Iran. And they are saying now that there is going to be a major new agreement between Russia and Iran. That's right. And and this China-Russia-Iran alliance is becoming more powerful uh, more economically powerful as well. Uh, they have huge oil reserves between the two of them, Russia and Iran. China has a huge market, a huge appetite for oil. So uh, this is something that's very dangerous. It's a realignment, if you wish. Uh, you did not have the alliance quite as powerful two, three years ago when Trump was president as it is today. The Ukraine war has pushed them together. The Iranians are supplying weapons to Russia unbelievable for me to even say that five years ago for me to say that the Iranians are supplying Russia with weapons. I would say, no, no, it's the Russians supplying Iran. No, no. Iran is supplying drones and and artillery munitions. Uh, North Korea is supplying artillery munitions to Russia to keep up its war. So this alliance is very dangerous. It's dangerous for the United States. We have by our failed policies, weak leadership from the Biden administration helped to bring it about. And Russia is stronger today than they were before the invasion of Ukraine, despite all of the U.S. sanctions. They are wealthier today. They're selling more oil. Uh, Frankly, uh, we're seeing the results of these failed policies. Well, Ken, let's continue to talk about Iran, and they are backers of Hamas, Hamas essentially an Iranian proxy doing the bidding of Iran. I'm wondering from a geopolitical perspective, especially when it comes to the Middle East, how has Iran's support for Hamas affected their standing in the Middle East? Look, I think the Iranians were seeking to strike a direct blow at Israel, uh, which they did on October 7th through uh, the intermediary of Hamas and these butchers, uh, and not pay the price for it. And so far, the Iranians have not paid any price for the support for Hamas. Uh, The Israelis have not struck Iran. They have not really gone after Hezbollah. I think what you're seeing is the the war in the north uh, in normal times, if if there had not been the October 7th attack, the level of missile attacks from Hezbollah into Israel probably would have provoked an Israeli invasion of South Lebanon in a normal year. 
you know, I don't know how many hundreds of missiles. I don't have the count of how many they have launched into Israel, but it's it's quite a lot. And you hear uh, uh, talks of Israeli retaliation almost every day, where there's airstrikes or uh, limited ground strikes. Uh, you hear this almost every day. So in a normal circumstance, without the October 7th attack, Israel would today be on the ground in South Lebanon battling uh, Hezbollah, Iran's other proxy, uh, right on their doorstep. So this second war has been held in abeyance. The Iranians have not yet paid a price, but I think Israel is also taking you know, one bite at a time. Starting with the elimination of Hamas, this has turned out to be an extraordinarily complicated operation. The United States is now wavering a bit in its support. Biden this week said that he wasn't going to put a timeline on Israel's fight against Hamas, but he was insisting that Israel pay more attention to civilian casualties. Well, the Israelis are really, I think, and I've looked at their operations very carefully. I'm following what they're doing very closely, and I saw it on the ground as well two weeks ago. The Israelis are really being just about as careful as they can possibly be in urban fighting to care for civilian populations. They're warning civilians to get out of specific areas ahead of time. So Hamas has tipped off where they're going to attack. And Hamas has been able to use this uh, uh, this week uh, to their favor. They launched a surprise attack against the elite unit of the Golani Brigade, killing the lieutenant colonel who is the commander of the battalion, as well as his two majors, his two chief officers underneath him, and a couple of captains. And it was a huge blow to the Golani Brigade. These Hamas uh, fighters came up out of the tunnels, and they knew where the Golani uh, fighters were. Look, I think Iran may have expected a stronger response from Israel. They were not expecting, I think, the two U.S. carrier battle task force armadas, uh, one now in the Persian Gulf and the other one in the Mediterranean. So I think they feel a little bit deterred by the United States. But to say that Iran is a winner or a loser, I think it's uh, right now a draw. The Iranians, again, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, the Iranians have this way of doing something absolutely outrageous, such as backing the October 7th attack, and then quickly retreating and say, oh, it's not us. Don't hit us. We're not involved. It's the other guys. Uh, and that's what they've done this time. They've tried to make themselves small, uh, not to provoke the Israelis to a major attack against them. And I think that is their goal right now, is not to be attacked. Ken Timmerman, keeping us informed on what is going on around the world. I said it earlier, if you go to his website, kentimmerman.com, you could look at his books, but you could also go to a link that he's got there that says blogs. You go there and you'll see a link to all the articles that he does for various print and television media. Ken, as always, thank you for what you do. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Great job as always, Ken. There's no doubt that world war will be a part of the future. Christ plainly taught that there would be war prior to his return. To be more specific, the future does hold at least one more world war. There's nothing in scripture that says there will only be a certain number of world wars. World War I and World War II are not explicitly mentioned in Scripture, nor is possible a third world war. It is only the last war that is mentioned in detail, which allows the interpretation that there may be other wars before the final conflict. And that's why we focus on events that are happening worldwide. Ken, thank you for joining with us today. 
We're going to take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East News Update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Last week, the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom released a report detailing severe religious freedom violations in Azerbaijan. Eric Mock with the Slava Gospel Association says Azerbaijan is a Muslim-dominant country. There are times that there are missionaries and pastors who are beaten for their faith, who pray over and over that their summer camp or their Christmas outreach can happen without violence. So it is very hard for them. But as I say that, at the same time, I can also tell you that in some of these difficult settings, the positive report that many of the Christian believers have among the community protects them from that violence. Pray for Azerbaijanis to find hope in the gospel. And working for the Lord in a place like Iran isn't easy. Government spies are everywhere, and saying the wrong thing to the right person could get you arrested, tortured, or killed. Yet Iranians are desperate for truth. Two years ago, Transform Iran launched a free mobile app to help meet the need. Today, the app has been downloaded thousands of times and is used frequently across devices. Transform Iran's Lana Silk says, This isn't about making profit. This is about making sure that people can access the gospel in an easy, convenient, and safe way. Pray for house churches to be started in ethnic minority communities as people learn from God's word in their heart languages. Our friends at Unfolding Word have been wonderful to help resource, support, and fund the translation of the Bible into a whole range of ethnic languages. We have an audio dramatization of the Gospel of John in Baluchi, in Laki, and in Luri. And there's more coming as well. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener-supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. Look for links at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And this is the portion of the program that we have our Middle East News Update. And let me again remind you, one of the reasons that we do this, first of all, we are examining current events. So it's really hard to plan out week to week what we cover. And number two, we're using God's Word to help us to understand and to cover the events of what we cover. The Jewish people a major part of Bible prophecy, understanding God's promises to the Jewish people that he's not finished with them. And that's why our Middle East news update is so very important, should be important in your daily life uh, following the Jewish people. The one tangible fact that we know that God has a plan for uh, the future and it's contained in his word. And uh, the very person that we trust each and every week. He's become a trusted friend of our family, of the broadcast family of Prophecy Today, David Dolan. David, welcome to the program again. Well, Jimmy, it's always good to be with you. Thanks. Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, David, uh, you and I were just talking before we went on the air. Uh, we go back so many years, 1984. Uh, of course, you were in Israel and Lebanon before that. But, you know, you, you get down the corridors of life and you look back and you see the people that God has brought into your life, the places that he's taken you. And it's for a reason so that later on that wisdom and knowledge that you have, 
you impart to the next generation. Should the Lord tarry, we need that next generation to understand why it's important, why we focus on the Jewish people, the events that we focus on. So I, I, I sure, again, I always want to take the opportunity to thank you for what you do. And it's so valuable and important for eternity for not only you, but for all of the body of Christ. So let's get started. Give us our latest update, David, on what we know and what's taking place in Israel. Well, of course, Jimmy, the, this past week was Hanukkah, a very joyous celebration mm. for the Jewish people normally. But of course, this time, this year, it was the opposite. We had funerals every day as soldiers were killed, three mm. more on Friday. Wednesday, the heaviest one-day toll, 10 were killed. And it was announced late Friday night that uh, Israel mistakenly killed three of the hostages being held by Hamas on Friday, mm. and their bodies are being ba brought back into Israel. We know that at least 20 of the hostages now are believed to be dead, so there's over 100 living hostages. A heavy fighting continuing in the north of Gaza. Uh, that isn't over by any means. That's where the 10 were killed, in fact, outside mm. of Gaza City also in the south, and we had continued reports of uh, Israel flooding some of the tunnels mm. in the north of the Gaza Strip. Uh, meanwhile, we had more rocket attacks into Israel. In fact, on Friday evening, just as the Sabbath was beginning, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem area, was struck for the first time since the early days of the war, and uh, six rockets were fired. Three were intercepted by Iron Dome right over the city. Uh, one landed in an open field in Beit Shemesh on the way to Tel Aviv, but mm -hmm. not far from Jerusalem. We had more activity in the north. Uh, um, we've had Hezbollah every day uh, striking Israeli towns, and they shot at Acre, the town near Haifa, uh, during the week. They shot some more along the border on Friday. And we had, of course, the idea of responding deeper into Lebanon than they'd been before with tanks, with aircraft. And uh, diplomatically, there's moves to set up a security buffer zone there, which existed when I went to Lebanon in 1980 to work, the mm. South Lebanese Security Zone, as you recall. And uh, they want to reestablish that with French and Lebanese forces involved. Meanwhile, we had more attacks from Syria on the Golan Heights during the week, several rockets, and Israel responded by st uh, striking what it said were Syrian military targets. Well, they usually don't even acknowledge mm -hmm. when they've struck in Syria, let alone that it was Syrian actual targets. So that's an escalation. Of course, more attacks on U.S. forces during the week, up to about 94 now. And uh, Jimmy, finally, down in the Red Sea, the situation continuing to heat up. The, one of the world's largest uh, shippers, Merck, announced on Friday that it will cease using the Red Sea, the uh, Suez Canal. It's going to ship all of its uh, tri uh, ships in that area are going to go south around the uh, Cape of Good Hope in Africa and up that way. So the uh, Houthis continue to shoot at ships. They struck one, a British vessel. Uh, they've uh, kidnapped several during the week. And Iran is claiming, well, the Red Sea is our zone of influence, not anybody else's, which, of course, is absurd because Iran is not on the Red Sea. Mm. It's Egypt and, and yeah. the Saudis and Israel and et cetera. So but they are they're still warmongering, basically, Jimmy. And uh, and that's, of course, uh, the whole thing behind all of this. Yes. You know, and uh, I've just read a statistic that says at 
Right now, there are 183 conflicts worldwide going on, and we increasingly we're seeing a lot of it is focused around the Middle East. And uh, we understand why that is, of course, understanding Bible prophecy, the focus on it. David, as we go into our 11th week, you know, of this uh, since October 7th, as we continue on in day-to-day life in Israel, you know, a lot of people are asking me, and first of all, we're very sensitive to the mourning process for the people of Israel. And I don't think they've even started that. But people ask, because some have said that, you know, this conflict is going to be over real quick. Hamas is going to be wiped out. But I think Prime Minister Netanyahu said it could last another two or three months. What's your take on this? Well, we had the New York Times report during the week that the White House is putting pressure for the conflict to end by the end of this month, which is just a couple more weeks. Right. That's ridiculous. But Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was in Israel on uh, Thursday and Friday, and he said, no, that's not true. We understand that this is a war that will take place in phases. That's what Israel told us from the start. We're only asking for a uh, you know, less intense fight right now to shift down the gears a little bit, basically, as I'm summarizing what he said. Mm-hmm. But we realize it's going to take some time to really uh, defeat Hamas. That was good to hear. But, of course, they were very disturbed, uh, Jimmy, in uh, Jerusalem, and all Israelis mm-hmm. were, I think, when they heard President Biden earlier in the week in a, a um, talk to uh, Democratic Party donors He said Israel is bombing indiscriminately Mm. in the Gaza war. And I talked to a friend of mine who was a Jerusalem cop for many years and is now too old to be even in the reserves. But he was a a negotiator for the military, a top position, and he keeps in touch with everything and everyone involved. He said there's no way that's happening. We target very in a calculated way. He said the only time there's a indiscriminate, if you will, um, bombing is when we're attacked from a position that we weren't expecting, and then we hit back. And if it's a civilian building, which it often is, well, that's sad. But he told me they estimate there's maybe two or 3,000 Palestinian uh, civilian casualties, not the nearly 20,000 that uh, Hamas is claiming. Right. And how would Hamas even know? Uh, <laughs> you know, they're underground mostly. And, of course, they the IDF says they've killed 7,000 uh, Hamas fighters, and that's probably true. And we saw a lot of them surrendering this week, Jimmy, and that's a sign that the end is coming. But Israel's determined to carry this out until Hamas is no more, and then possibly deal with Hezbollah if this diplomatic situation doesn't uh, unfold. Yes, you and I have, have talked about that. I, uh, I I felt that all along, that they're just waiting to get in. Uh, there, Jerusalem Post quickly, he said uh, the Jerusalem Post posted an article that Hamas could recognize Israel to end the war in Gaza. Do you think that's a possibility? It doesn't matter because Israel doesn't recognize Hamas. <laughs> they do recognize Hamas. They recognize it's a deadly, death-seeking terror organization and uh, there's no way Israel is going to deal with Hamas in that sort of a way. They are going to destroy it from the Gaza Strip. They will deal with the Palestinian Authority, of course, but uh, they want changes there. And so did uh, Sullivan say that there needs to be some, well, a new election for one. There hasn't right. been since 2006. 
Yeah, I love what uh, I love your reaction to it. It doesn't matter. So uh, uh, great job, David. Thank you so much. I know we're both getting ready for the holidays and uh, you're looking forward to spending your time. I look forward to talking to you next week, right before Christmas, where we talk about some memories of our past Christmases in Israel. Thanks, David, for joining with us today. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. God bless you, David. You know, as we examine these events, world events, it's for the body of Christ to understand the times in which we're living. I know I always say that over and over. And I mentioned that there are 183 conflicts worldwide right now. I remember when my father used to talk about 150. We have increased that. And according to Bible prophecy, there are going to be wars until Jesus Christ comes back on the earth to establish his kingdom. Well, Coming up in the next half hour, Itamar Marcus and Dr. Don DeYoung talking about climate change. He's our creation physicist who will help us to understand what is happening in our world. We're going to take a break. The Legacy Series today, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung continues his thoughts on Christmas right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Christian persecution in China is the worst it's been in 40 years, according to Dr. Bob Fu, president of China Aid. Dr. Fu spoke about this issue recently on the Voice of the Martyrs Canada's podcast, Closer to the Fire. He says Chinese censorship efforts especially target Christian youth. Government-sanctioned churches are heavily monitored with facial recognition cameras, and children aren't allowed inside. Please pray for young Chinese believers to be steadfast in their faith. And did you know that the U.S. has the second highest number of Spanish speakers in the world? Hayel Ortiz leads a new TWR initiative connecting Spanish language users with biblical resources in Spanish. These resources also help Spanish language pastors who often work two jobs. These materials don't tell a pastor how to lead his church, but they help Spanish language leaders care for their flocks. The details and the full story at our website. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. In the next half hour, we have Itamar Marcus and Dr. Don DeYoung, a creation physicist, coming to talk to us about climate change and the conference that just took place. His his outlook on what's really taking place with climate change. Well, Rick, uh, we're still focusing on the Jewish people and the situation in the Middle East and the Gaza Strip. Let's go to our good friend, Itamar Marcus. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Itamar Marcus. He's a longtime broadcast partner of this program. He's with Palestinian Media Watch, a place that you can learn more about by going to palwatch.org. Itamar, thank you for joining us today. Always a pleasure to be with you. Itamar, I know that you've been very busy since October 7th and even before October 7th. And just just to let our listeners know, if you have been listening to us when we have Itamar on the program or if you have been to their website at palwatch.org, then October 7th should come as no surprise because they have been indoctrinating the Palestinians, the the official government channels for the Palestinian media have been indoctrinating the Palestinians on that. And this is something that Itamar has been addressing on this program, but then even recently, I know you were in Brussels with the European Union, you were with in Geneva with the United Nations. Can you tell us what you've been talking about at those places, Itamar? Okay, sure. I was in Brussels at the European Parliament, and I was in 
uh, in Geneva at the United Nations uh, Human Rights Council. And the message in, in both places was that what happened on October 7th, the, the atrocities, the rape, the decapitations, the, the glee that we saw on the Palestinians' faces and the videos as they were torturing uh, men, women, and children, that didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened because they have been made to believe by the Palestinian Authority that killing Jews, hating Jews, is what Allah wants of them. Now, Islam can be interpreted in different ways. The Palestinian Authority has taught its people that the Jews are the enemy of Allah, they're cursed by Allah, that at the end of time, uh, Muslims are going to exterminate the Jews. Uh, literally, that the, the resurrection, the end of time, won't come until Muslims fight the Jews and kill them. This is how Palestinians are brought up. This is what they believe. Uh, they're taught to believe that uh, the Jews are an evil force in the world. The Jews are connected to Satan, bringing responsible for all the evil in the world. In fact, in a sermon earlier this year, the top religious figure in the PA, a man named Mahmoud Al-Abbas, who's advisor to, to, to Mahmoud Abbas, the president, he said on TV that Jews aren't only aligned with Satan, they actually are Satan. He said, Satan doesn't have to be a demonic form. It can be in the form of a human. He was talking about Jews. That's what he was saying, that Jews are actually Satan. Uh, this is the top religious figure speaking to a very religious society. Well, of course they're going to go out and kill Jews and torture them and, and, and decapitate them because they felt like they were doing God's work. And this is coming not just from Hamas. It's coming from the Palestinian Authority also. You can find out more about Itamar's work by going to powwatch.org. And there you can see several different articles, one of them that struck me. Uh, right now, we are looking at many in the world calling for a quote-unquote ceasefire. And they are saying that uh, this is unfair to the citizens of Gaza. But Hamas is intentionally putting their citizens, those Palestinians, in harm's way. They are proud to sacrifice Gaza. That's what they're saying, isn't it? Exactly. They're, they're literally people like uh, Ismail Ani, I think it was, who said, and he's a senior uh, Hamas leader. He said that they need the blood of children, women, and, and men, um, and elderly, uh, in order to inspire the Palestinians to want to revolt, to want to be angry, to want to fight. Literally, he's saying they need the blood of children. Can you imagine a leader saying he needs the blood of his people's children? This is what Hamas is. They're willing to kill Israelis. Uh, but they're even willing to sacrifice their own people just for their own political gain. And what they've been doing is, is as Israeli soldiers are going into Gaza to go after the terrorists who did these terrible atrocities, Hamas is telling its civilians to stay in place and literally be human shields. They tell them not to fear death. Martyrdom is a wonderful thing to ha that can happen to you. It's martyrdom for Allah. So you, you've got, and the of course, the Hamas then uses this politically he screamed to the world, oh, save our civilians, save our civilians are being killed by Israel. In fact, they're being killed. It's completely the responsibility of Hamas, both for starting this war and for telling its civilians to stay in the middle of the combat arena. Well, Itamar, I know they are creating a culture of martyrdom, and this is something that you addressed at the UN and at the EU, because they are supporting the Palestinian Authority, and the Palestinian Authority is turning around and paying the families of those that would go martyr themselves, creating this perverse motivation for young people to kill themselves. Isn't that what's going on here? Exactly. The Palestinian Authority rewards not just the families of martyrs. Every terrorist who goes to jail 
in Israel receives immediately from the day he's arrested, starts receiving a Palestinian Authority salary. He's on payroll of the PA. Now, the United States has been funding the, and not just the EU, the United States has been funding the Palestinian Authority for literally since their inception 30 years ago. And uh, the Palestinian Authority during this whole period has been rewarding terrorists. You go to jail, you start getting a salary of a couple of hundred dollars a month, and eventually it goes up to uh, a few thousand dollars a month, three and a half, four thousand dollars a month, which is about four times the average Palestinian salary. So you could become very, very rich in prison. We had a case where a Palestinian terrorist tried to kill Israelis, and when uh, and he was arrested, and when he was interviewed by, uh, or I should say, cross-examined by by the police, they asked him, "Why did you do this terror attack?" He said, "Well, I've had financial difficulties." He used this expression, I couldn't even buy chewing gum for my children. I had no money. So I decided that I was just going to give up on life and commit suicide. And then he said, I thought, well, wait a second. If I just commit suicide, my family has no benefits. If I attack an Israeli and I'm killed while I'm killing an Israeli, Mm -hmm. uh, then I'm going to be officially declared a martyr and my family will get payment for the rest of their life, monthly payments of... uh, in his case, it would have been probably about close to 2,000 shekel because he was married. So he gets 1,400 for each kid. He gets some more for his wife. He gets some more. He would have been getting close to 2,000 shekel a month, which is over $500 a month for his family, which in Gaza goes up, which in Gaza or the West Bank goes very, very far. So here we have a terrorist who wanted to be a terrorist for the sole purpose of providing for his family forever. So this is the Palestinian Authority, rewards terror, encourages terror, motivates terror, and then glorifies people after they kill Israelis. As a popular American broadcaster used to say, this is the rest of the story, and this is a narrative that the world doesn't necessarily want you to see, especially they look at Israel as the quote-unquote occupier or the oppressor, Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. These governments, and by extension, the Maybe the Arab world in general or those that don't want Israel to exist as a state are creating this narrative and they are manipulating people to do these things. And so you need to know both sides of the stories before you make a judgment on the situation there in the Middle East and in Israel, don't you? Absolutely. There's so much uh, fake news about Israel going on. It's just uh, it's just shocking. And, and, and I don't blame a lot of people for sometimes seeing, thinking Israel is at fault. For example, they've been saying for years that the Gazans have a right to attack Israelis because they're in a prison under occupation. Well, they were not under occupation by Israel. They were under occupation by Hamas, uh, but not by Israel. Israel left Gaza uh, in 2006. Not an Israeli soldier was left there. The entire thing was left for the Palestinian uh, population, the Palestinian Authority. We left many businesses. There were tremendous agricultural businesses and, and exports that Israel was doing flour exports around the world. Hamas just let it all go to ruin. They built military bases where the where the businesses were. They used all the money that they got from foreign governments to, to that instead of building housing and factories, they build underground tunnels for terrorists, uh, hundreds of miles of underground tunnels so that they could run their terror war. And they're blaming Israel. There was no open air prison there. There was no occupation there. There was Hamas terrorists who abused their own people and uh, and more responsible for all of their suffering, not Israel. Well, my final question, Itamar, as we continue to talk about the situation, the top story on the website 
that I'm looking at right now at powwatch.org. And again, I encourage our listeners to go to that website. But it's starting to look like the civilians in Gaza are turning against Hamas because they are realizing, like you mentioned earlier, that Hamas does not have their best interest at heart. They are only concerned about attacking Israel and not concerned about making life better for those civilians, those Palestinians in Gaza. And they are starting to turn against Hamas, aren't they? Absolutely. And uh, you can't bring this kind of suffering on the population without them eventually turning on you. Now, this is very interesting. Uh, A poll that was taken uh, about a month ago found that 98 percent of Palestinians were proud of what happened uh, and the aftermath. In other words, the 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 attack, the the atrocities of October 7th and the aftermath, the war, uh, they were proud of be Palestinians about this. Now, this is an incredibly shocking figure, 98%. Now, President Biden uh, recently in one of his speeches said that Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinian people. Well, he's absolutely wrong. Hamas definitely does represent the Palestinian people because the Palestinian people are saying so in their polls. In that same poll, I think it was 80% who said that they, they were happy with the way Hamas was behaving and had behaved uh, during this period and only... 10% said they were happy with the Palestinian Authority. So Hamas is the one. Hamas is the one that represents the Palestinian people. This terror organization, this genocidal terror organization that can burn people alive and decapitate children, this is the organization that represents the Palestinian people today, that they say, that they say in the polls represents them. So this is a wake-up call for Israel. We have to be very cautious about what we do in, in any future step with the Palestinians. Uh, we cannot trust them if this is if this is who they say they 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 respect and these are the leaders that they like. And it's also a wake up call for the rest of the world. Why are you funding the Palestinians when they are just going to they're just going to put Hamas as their leadership uh, down the line? Well, Inamar, in light of that answer, and if we're looking at this situation, Israel has a threat from Hamas. Does Israel have the ability to eliminate the threat that Hamas poses? I don't know that they'll ever eliminate that thought process or that ideology that they have, but can they eliminate that threat from Hamas? Well, I I think we've either killed or injured or arrested a half of Hamas's army of 30,000 terrorists. Um, in this last month, it's been very painful for Israel. We've lost uh, we've lost a lot of our soldiers. We've lost over a hundred soldiers, and, and 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 it's it's different. I know that when there have been wars in the United States, you, you get numbers. Sometimes uh, we don't get those numbers. We get every morning. We get the names of the people. They're interviewing the family members. They're interviewing mm-hmm. the children. They're interviewing the wives. And I mean, I mean, the news tonight, the evening news today, opened with. The names of, uh, of the ten soldiers who died yesterday, in nine of them in one terrible battle, and all their stories. And you heard the wives talking, eulogizing, eulogizing them at their funerals today. And then you hear, you see the children crying. I mean, this really. I mean, it's it's not just numbers. It's uh, it's real people. And tomorrow morning, I know exactly what the front page of the newspapers are going to be. We're going to see the faces of all these ten people, and there's going to be story after story about them and what they did and what they were. And, and, and a lot of them, they're not young, they're not 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds. They're, they're family members. We, most of our soldiers in there now are reservists. And they're reservists, they're married, they have children. 
One uh, soldier died last two week, uh, was killed. Uh, six children today. A few. I mean, it, it's just one horror story and tragedy after another. These are real people. So it's 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 uh, to, to answer your question, it's painful. But given the fact that they killed twelve hundred people and and massacred and those atrocities, our soldiers. I call them soldiers. Our our family members. I've got. I didn't even want to start counting how many family members I have who, who are fighting, who are drafted, and everybody has family members who are drafted and friends. Uh, and many people know people who have already been killed. So it's very painful, very hard, but everybody feels we have to destroy Hamas. So we will keep going. We will keep going until we destroy them. And then Gaza has to be rebuilt without them. The ideology will be there, but we are going to have to make sure that there's not another gun in the Gaza Strip. Edmar, as our listeners continue and they hear those heartbreaking stories that you're telling, and we appreciate you, our thoughts and prayers are with you. What's the best way for us to maintain context, for us to continue to understand, as I said earlier, both sides of the story? What's the best way for our listeners to do that? Well, they should go to our website, palwatch.org, and on the homepage, you can subscribe to get our daily our daily newsletter. It's, it's not a newsy newsletter. It's information, literally quotes pictures, videos, everything that's happening in the Palestinian world so that you can really, really be up on what's happening. And then you can forward these to your congressmen, uh, to the media, to journalists, you know, play a role in this fight. Itamar Marcus, thank you for joining us today and we'll be in touch and talk to you again soon. Thank you very much for inviting Well, a longtime friend of our radio program, Dr. Don DeYoung. Dr. DeYoung is a physicist, professor emeritus at Grace College in Winona Lake, Indiana. Um, Don, welcome to the program. I'm delighted to join you. So today we're talking a little bit about, and one of the reasons that I love to, to hear what you have to say, recently in the news, President Biden and world leaders were at the Conference of Parties talking about climate change. And so we're just trying to figure out today, uh, first of all, did you watch that or were you, uh, I'm sure that you were aware that it was on, but uh, were you sitting on pins and needles watching what was going to come out of this conference? Well, no, no the quick answer would be no. No, I'm certainly, you know, watching the, the summaries. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's world news when you get over 100 nations coming together. So it's kind of interesting to watch um, the controversy and watch the bottom line to see what what can be done. First of all, are we in a climate change or a global warming? And those two phrases, I guess, are used at different times. But which is it right now? Yeah, you know, the terms are pretty much interchangeable. And uh, uh, it does appear that uh, we are uh, undergoing some some climate change. It, it shows up uh, even in, in the weekly in the weekly weather. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line is the climate of the world is always making adjustments. It's always changing. If you look at history, including uh, Bible history, there have been uh, cooler periods. There have been warmer periods. So this is not a one-time event. It's not, uh, you know, they tell some of our college students that this is the end of the world as mm -hmm. we know it. But uh, time moves on and adjustments are made. So, yes, the, temp the, the climate does uh, come and go. It always, it always has. You know, if you think back uh, uh, in Bible history, in uh, the pre-flood centuries from Adam to Noah, this world was, the whole world was warmer. 
we have uh, uh, fossil evidence that the whole place was tropical. Mm-hmm. After the after the global flood, there was a colder period when the Earth's climate was um, thrown out of equilibrium, and we really did have an ice age. Now, not a million years ago, but in Old Testament times, and then the Earth recovered from that. So again, uh, the temperature is always making adjustments and changes, and there are many variables. Certainly, uh, uh, people do not help it any with our large population of the world today, but there are many, many other factors. In fact, some of them much greater than anything that people can do. The oceans, the sun, lots of uh, variables. And that's why it's so hard to get a handle on, on climate change as the different variables kind of interplay against each other. Yes. And do you think that the decisions or, uh, and I know that a lot of countries signed on to trying to deal with carbon emissions and those kind of things. In fact, I guess uh, uh, some of the catchphrases, uh, uh, adaptation and adjustment to life as, as the climate changes. That includes modifying behaviors or systems in the face of shifting temperatures, sea levels, precipitation, and other weather climate patterns. A recent study found that at least 85% of the world's population has already already been affected by climate change. This is one of the catchphrases. Is that true? Well, certainly there are effects, whatever the climate can do. And if you are living on a shoreline, on a coastline, on a low-lying island, uh, yes, there could be certainly some consequences if, um, you know, if water levels rise. And again, they have risen and fallen in the past. But again, this is, uh, it's not a unique situation. This is the way our imperfect world is. Mm -hmm. If you live in Hawaii, you have volcano challenges. If you're in Southern California, you have earthquake challenges. Mm. Uh, If you're on a coastline, then you may have sea level changes. So it's just uh, one of many events. Actually, you know, what this is showing is a world that's fallen, and we look forward to a better day to come. But meanwhile, uh, it's what it's what we've brought on ourselves. Sure. What about biodiversity? I mean, they're, they're talking about uh, the UN report that came out that said uh, calling the decline unprecedented and noting that one million species are threatened with extinction. Well, those are interesting terms. If uh, you do uh, a lot of research on that, it's very widespread just mm. uh, how many species are um, going away, whether plants or animals. And the numbers vary all the way from near zero to, like you say, millions. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly as the world changes uh, uh, and, uh, you know, we fill in um, uh, places where creatures live, it puts uh, pressure on them. Uh you know, we don't know how many uh, species there are, are in the world today, let alone how many we may be we may be losing. And it's all, I think, a good reason as from our faith position to, you know, be in favor of uh, protecting creatures and uh, watching over endangered species because, boy, they all have lessons to teach us and uh, things to learn about, uh, you know, the creation details. So whether we're losing them or not, uh, it's... Uh, it, it's it's a toss up. I tell you, I am encouraged. Uh, over and over again, they'll find a, a, a type of plant or an animal that they thought was long gone, and here they still are surviving on the earth. God has built some uh, great survival instincts into creatures, and very often uh, they're they're around whether we know it or not. Mm. That's a great thought. Here's a question I have for you. I, I see uh, the phrase like, carbon capture and storage. What is carbon capture and storage? 
Yes, that's one of the you know elements that um, uh, this uh, conference is talking about. Actually, they're also going after methane, and that's mm. kind of an easy one to try to reduce. Right. But when it comes to carbon dioxide, which is a, a greenhouse gas, when that's released into the air, it becomes like a, a screen in the sky that'll trap sunlight and then warm up the earth. Um, so the efforts are to capture that, either to send it underground or incorporate it somehow. I think those are all efforts are good as long as it doesn't, you know, ruin our economy. Meanwhile, because it's always a sure. trade off on things. But again, uh, because of all the variables, we know that the ocean soaks up a lot of CO2 and uh, so does uh, just uh, rock formation. And so um, that's certainly worth looking at. And, you know, actually, when you look at even our human history, there's been one challenge after another, whether it's um, the loss of the ozone layer, many different problems. And one by one, we solve those. It does give you, I think, a a credible um, happiness with our technology that they're able to solve problems. And likewise, uh, the the warming problems can be looked at. And, yeah, encapsulating um, carbon is just one effort which might, um, in in a, probably in a small way, address the buildup of carbon dioxide. Sure. Do you think there is something? Um, and I know that this is a good thing. We're we're all in favor of being wise stewards of this earth that God has given to us. We do understand from what Scripture tells us, especially Bible prophecy, as we stu- study Bible prophecy, understanding what's going to take place in the day of the Lord. And remember the phrase, in the day of the Lord, a definition for that is any time that God intercedes with the affairs of man on earth. And that will be from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 19, uh, 21 judgments on this earth where we can't even comprehend the things uh, that are going to take place as far as the natural earth is concerning. Uh, but uh, when you look at this now, do you, as a creation scientist, physicist, do you see any type of sinister motive behind the United Nations getting together to to decide to clamp down on, you know, and try to control what's happening in the world? No, I would not go that far. Okay. But I would see the conference as, you know, the best efforts that, that, that mankind man. on their own can tr- try to as they say, save the earth, of course, mm. which is futile anyway. But, and uh, as I look at it, it's really kind of selfish. You know, it's for ourselves and uh, to make this earth so that we can enjoy it more. But actually, from the faith viewpoint, uh, you mentioned stewardship. We've got the best reason for caring for this earth because we know who made it, and it shows his artwork, and in fact, we're responsible for it. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, we have end-time events. Uh, This world is temporary, but meanwhile, we are here, and we are told to care for the earth, just like we care for our own bodies. They're Mm -hmm. temporary as well, but uh, to to keep it up. And so, yes, we do have that responsibility there, but I think it's more of an appreciation and love for the Creator rather than doing it for our own selfish purposes. Exactly, exactly. Well, wrapping up and uh, taking a look, and again, I could talk about, I mean, how often do you get to talk to a doctor, uh, a scientist, a physicist, a creation physicist, uh, when you look at um, the information that Don has stored in? I, I just, I, I, I love uh, talking about astronomy, and I like talking about the things in the heavens and, and on the earth. 
as Christians, how should we, um, and this is maybe just in a, in a few short sentences, uh, so that people would be able to walk away, um, as Christians, how should we view climate change? Well, I would be positive. I would be optimistic. Mm. I would say, look at this world over the last hundred years with all the population increase, Earth temperature appears to have gone up by about one or two degrees. Mm. That is amazing. It shows that God has built strength, integrity into this world to, to, put, to put up with us. It all shows his hand. And certainly we don't trash the place. We don't litter the landscape. We're to, we're to care for it. But um, God has set up a wonderful system for us. And uh, and we carry on. Mm. Dr. Don DeYoung. Don, as you look up into the stars and as you watch that, and I know that you are, are, are watching what's taking place in outer space, do you see anything that concerns you as far as I know that we still have um, asteroids and, and um, you know, objects in space hur- hurling towards you, towards the Earth? Does any of that concern you at all? Well, exploration goes on. We continue to see the wonder that's up there. And, uh, you know, uh, again, as Christians, we have a confidence that we're not going to get hit by a comet that would wipe out humanity. That's not God's plan at all. Mm. So instead, we can enjoy what's in the sky, the sun, moon, and the starlight nights. Dr. Don DeYoung, I love it how you say that. And, uh, I, again, the confidence that we have in Colossians one seventeen, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And that means he holds the earth, the world, the solar system, uh, the planetary system out there all in his hands, and uh, only in his timing will that be released and and uh, then a new heaven, a new earth in the future. Well, thank you, Don, for being with us today. And uh, we sure appreciate you taking the time. We'll talk to you later. Hey, we'll look forward to next time. Well, we need to take a break. And when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series and his thoughts on Christmas right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. I really love the legacy series that we've been doing all the month of December, Rick, and it is looking at the interesting events that took place around Christmas time. We looked at the month of December. We looked at the date of December 25th. This week, we're going to be looking at the shepherds in shepherd's fields. Rick, it's a great series, isn't it? It sure is, Jimmy, and we've talked about it many times, and half of the prophecies that were in the Bible point towards that event that took place, the most important event in all of history, the arrival of Jesus Christ to the earth. And uh, we've been in shepherd's fields and rehearsed that many times, haven't we? We sure have, and we're going to have a special offer. That's right, Jimmy. We have a DVD called The Bethlehem Beyond the Christmas Story, and we talk about what took place at the Shepherd's Fields during that time. If that's something that you would like, if you call our office at 423-825-6247, we would love to give that DVD to you for a donation of any amount. And Jimmy, these last two weeks, the end of the year, this is when we receive a large amount of our support, and we greatly appreciate the support of our listeners. It's what keeps this ministry going. If you appreciate this ministry and the ministry of prophecy today, overall, if you would consider giving to us at this time of the year, we would greatly appreciate it. You go to our website, prophecytoday.com. And like I said, Jimmy, if you call our office, 423-825-6247, Let us show our appreciation by giving you 
Bethlehem Beyond the Christmas Story, or any DVD that you might like for your gift of any amount. ProphecyToday.com, and we thank you in advance for you prayerfully considering giving to our ministry. In our past studies, we studied how Zacharias and Elizabeth would have John, John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then we looked at December 25th. Was that the day, the true day, that Jesus Christ was born? This week, we want to focus on the shepherds. There were shepherds there in the shepherd's fields just outside the little village of Bethlehem. Who were they? And what is the significance of where they were there in the shepherd's fields? And by the way, why were they there in the shepherd's fields? Well, we will look at all of that as we continue our study today, and we're going to be looking at the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 8. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. As we continue our study of interesting details and facts about the Christmas story, I want to focus in on the shepherds. They were key players in the Christmas story. I want to talk about the shepherds, who they were, where they were located, and why were they there. Naturally, you expect to find shepherds in the shepherds' fields where the sheep are being kept. Most of the time, these were Bedouins are nomads. That's the case throughout the Middle East today. These shepherds, these Bedouins and nomads, will wander from place to place, mostly in the desert, in search of grass for their sheep. You know, that's still the case today. You can travel throughout the land of the Bible and see shepherds in field after field across the countryside. It is amazing to do a study on these shepherds. They know how to care for lambs. Lambs are very dumb animals. In fact, there's a wonderful story told about how one shepherd had to break the leg of one of his lambs in order to teach him discipline so that he would be able to keep the flock together and keep them from going into harm's way. There's an interesting parallel that Jesus Christ has with the shepherds, and that is told in the book of Psalm chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd. In fact, there are a number of passages in the Bible where you can read about shepherds. But on that night of the birth of Jesus Christ, the shepherds were in the shepherd's fields there just outside the little village of Bethlehem. When we go to the text, Luke chapter 2, now this is one of four chapters in the Bible, some 168 verses, that give us the details and the facts about that Christmas night some 2,000 years ago. Here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, we read that there were indeed in that same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came unto them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now notice verse 12 here in Luke chapter 2. And the angel said unto the shepherds, And this shall be a sign unto you. Now let me stop right there just for a moment. For many years I had difficulty understanding what the sign was. The text reads, following that statement by the angel, that ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, you know, I really don't understand how that could be a sign. However, these shepherds, after receiving the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, 
went with haste to find Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. That's verse 16 of Luke chapter 2. This was indeed a sign that is a key component of understanding how Bible prophecy laid out every single detail for the birth of the Messiah, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. Next week we'll get more into the study of how this was a sign to those shepherds there in the shepherd's fields. Let me think with you just a few moments about who were these shepherds. First of all, they were not little boys, or they weren't even teenagers. You might think as you travel through the Middle East and you see all the shepherds as little boys, maybe in their early or late teens, these are the shepherds that would have been in the fields there that night of the birth of Jesus Christ. You see, these shepherds were also trained as priests that would operate in the temple. Every one of these men had to study for 28 years. They would study from two years of age all the way to 30 when they would qualify to be the priest, and they would study the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, they would learn how to do the sacrificial activities at the temple. That's the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Then they would learn the standard that they would have to meet to be a priest in the temple. That was chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Leviticus. Finally, from chapters 12 through 27, they would understand how to worship in a temple, which was a key responsibility for all of these priests. However, the priests that were out there in the shepherds' fields that night, they were priestly shepherds with a different responsibility than operating the temple there three miles away from the shepherds' fields. These priestly shepherds were there to watch over the sheep that had a destiny at the temple. Before I get to that, let's think a moment, where were these shepherds' fields? The shepherds' fields were just outside the little town of Bethlehem in the area of Bethlehem Euphrata. Now that's required by the book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2, because the birth of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, had to take place in the little town of Bethlehem. So these shepherds' fields were right outside the little village of Bethlehem. I myself have stood right there in those shepherds' fields in the nighttime, looking across those fields over to the lights of the little village of Bethlehem, and had my mind go back some 2,000 years as if I was a shepherd, one of those priestly shepherds there in the shepherds' fields. By the way, these shepherds' fields are the same location where Jacob pitched his tent after he buried his wife, Rachel, who had just given birth to their last son, Benjamin, there in Bethlehem, Euphrata. The text tells us in the book of Genesis chapter 35 that Jacob left the burial site, went back towards Jerusalem, and on the road between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, which is only a three-mile trip, there Jacob pitched his tent at a place called Migdal Adar. Migdal Adar, or translated from the Hebrew, the Tower of the Flock, is a very important location in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy as it relates to the first coming of Jesus Christ. This will also be a part of our study next time we get together. You know, as you read the book of Ruth, you'll find out that these were also the fields of Boaz. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer who actually redeemed Ruth and made her a part of the lineage to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Ruth was the great-grandmother of David, the son of Jesse, 
who was a shepherd in these same fields. A lot of activity had taken place in this location before that eventful night of the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let me remind you who these shepherds were. They were priestly shepherds there in the shepherd's fields in the area of the little town of Bethlehem. But the question still remains, why were these priestly shepherds in these fields? Priestly shepherds had the responsibility of watching over the lambs. You may recall 1 Samuel chapter 17, which is a record of David, the little shepherd boy, who would actually become one day a king of Israel. And the record indicates that he had to watch over his father's sheep there in the shepherd's fields. And one day he went out and had to kill a bear and a lion in order to protect his sheep. Well, these priestly shepherds had that same responsibility to protect these sheep because they were very special sheep. They were lambs that would be sacrificed at the temple some three miles away. You see, these priestly shepherds were serving there in the shepherd's fields because the shepherd's fields were the holding pen for the sacrificial lambs to be offered at the temple. They had to be without blemish and without spot. They must be protected so they could be presented as a pure sacrifice at the temple. In addition to watching over these lambs that were destined to be sacrificed at the temple, these priestly shepherds would give birth to the newborn lambs as well. And they would do that at Migdal Adar. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself in the story, and I need to wait next week to see how Migdal Adar plays into the Christmas story as we look at the interesting details and facts about the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let me just remind you that these priestly shepherds had the responsibility of watching over these lambs that would be indeed sacrificed at the temple. It was on that Christmas night over 2,000 years ago when these priestly shepherds in the fields just outside the little village of Bethlehem would receive the announcement from the angels that would announce the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Again, let me go to the text, Luke chapter 2, and this time verse 9. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon these shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and these shepherds were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. These angels then announced to the shepherds, And this shall be a sign unto you. And with haste these shepherds went to find the newborn babe, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, let me remind you that these shepherds' fields were the holding pen for the sacrificial lambs. And on that night, the shepherds' fields would become the holding pen for the sacrificial lamb. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. He gave his life for you and for me. Jesus indeed is the reason for the season. He brings to all of us the gift of salvation, which is a free gift, in fact the best gift that any of us could ever receive. 
You know, you can receive that gift of eternal life, that gift of salvation from Jesus Christ, and you can do it today. All that is needed is for you, as I did when I was 11 years old, to admit that we're sinners and we are in the need of a Savior. Then we need to believe that Jesus Christ, who was born some 2,000 years ago, came to this earth to be the ultimate sacrifice for all of sin. He died, he was buried, but three days later he rose from the dead to give us eternal life. All we need to do is call upon him to save us. Romans 10.13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a gift we can receive at this Christmas time. Thank you, Dr. DeYoung. And if you did make a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior this Christmas, please send us an email at jimmyjr at prophecytoday.com. We would love to hear from you, and we have a special gift for you as you start to grow as a newborn Christian. Next week on the broadcast, we'll find out more about what that sign was all about that the angels gave to the shepherds there in the shepherd's fields. Hope you can join us next week as we study more interesting details and facts that are related to the Christmas story. We have to take a break. We'll be right back, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Christian persecution in China is the worst it's been in 40 years, according to Dr. Bob Fu, president of China Aid. Dr. Fu spoke about this issue recently on the Voice of the Martyrs Canada's podcast, Closer to the Fire. He says Chinese censorship efforts especially target Christian youth. Government-sanctioned churches are heavily monitored with facial recognition cameras, and children aren't allowed inside. Please pray for young Chinese believers to be steadfast in their faith. And did you know that the U.S. has the second highest number of Spanish speakers in the world? Hayel Ortiz leads a new TWR initiative connecting Spanish language users with biblical resources in Spanish. These resources also help Spanish language pastors who often work two jobs. These materials don't tell a pastor how to lead his church, but they help Spanish language leaders care for their flocks. The details and the full story at our website. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, uh, great program today. And, you know, I started out the program talking about war. Can you imagine a world without a war, and I said yes, in the future. Of course, we know when that future is, that's when Jesus Christ sets up 
and rules, starts the 1,000-year reign of Christ, the millennial period, and that's uh, listed in Bible prophecy, and it's one of the uh, major events on God's timeline in the future. But as we look at this, and we talk to our broadcast partners today, I, I thought it was very interesting, and we brought out the fact that there are 183 wars somewhere around the world uh, today, conflicts. Uh, when you look at this, really, what do you think as we talk to our broadcast partners? Well, when we talk to our broadcast partners, we've been focusing on the Russia-Ukraine crisis and the war between Israel and Hamas, but there are many other conflicts taking place around the world. And of course, as we grew up studying history, we knew World War One and World War Two. but you know, uh, the Bible says there's going to be a war in the future that is going to be essentially a war to end all wars. So there is still more war in our future. But we look at these situations, the things that are taking place in Russia and Ukraine right now and and, and, and Israel and, and uh, Hamas, these things are basically setting the stage. They're basically, we can look at the players that are coming together. Uh, they are basically setting the stage for what the Bible says is going to take place during the tribulation period and in the lead up to that final war. Yeah. You know, being prepared, being uh, prepared spiritually in this lifetime in which we're living, uh, being productive, being pure, um, you know, staying focused is why we do the program. Um, David Dolan, he and I were talking before we went on the air about how important we feel this program is, um, really keeping people focused. I liked Itamar's interview today. We focus again on the Jewish people because tangibly that's the one thing that we have to see as God is going to carry the Jewish people through from those promises and the covenants that he made with them, he's going to fulfill those. But those are all in the future to come. When we look at, when we're looking at events worldwide, how does, you know, the things that you focus on and we bring that to the importance of people that are listening to the program, how's, how does that uh, help you to understand, you know, which direction we're going to go? Well, Jimmy, we talked with Ken Timmerman earlier in the program, and when we study Scripture, God gives us the gift of Bible prophecy. He tells us events that are going to take place in the future, and he gives us those for a reason, like you said just a minute ago, to help us to live pure, prepared, and motivated um, for for him. And so we look at that situation, but we talk about the scenario. He talks about Russia becoming stronger, and he talks about the alliance between Russia and Iran, and then China coming into that as well. And these things that are things that the Bible says uh, these countries are going to be involved, Ezekiel 38. I know you could talk about that a little bit, Jimmy, but that uh, the Bible says that these nations are going to come against Israel, of course, another country that we focus on, and they are going to come against the Jewish people there. So as we look at these things coming together right now, it gives us uh, a certain amount of uncertainty for sure, because it, it it's very disconcerting to look at these things and look at the images on the television. But on the other side of it, we realize that God's plan is coming together. He's had a plan from Genesis 1 all the way through to the end of Revelation. He's got a plan, and his plan is coming together. It's right on his time. It's right on his schedule. And so that gives us a certainty. We know where we are. We know we're not in a world full of chaos, but we know that uh, Bible prophecy tells us what's going to happen in the future. future and it also provides a, 
it provides a motivation for us to tell others about what's going to happen and to share the the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jimmy, it also gives us the opportunity to feel comfort because we know uh, where we are going to be when these things take place. We know where we're going to spend eternity. So that is a huge comfort uh, when we look at Bible prophecy and we see these things that are taking place around the world and how they fit into God's prophetic plan. You know, in the book of Revelation, John the Apostle was shown what the end times would be like, specifically the last seven years prior to Christ's return, not the seven years prior to his rapture, because no one knows when the rapture is going to take place, but to the return of Jesus Christ. Beginning in Revelation 6, as you said, Rick, uh, we look throughout the book of Revelation. Revelation 6, 2 begins with, I believe, the Gog and Magog War of Ezekiel 38. Of course, that's the second seal. The first seal is the Antichrist. And, and um, you know, as you look at Revelation chapter 11, we see the beast rises out of the bottomless pit to make war on um, the saints, those that accept Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. And uh, he rises to conquer them and to kill them. When you look at Revelation chapter 12, Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. So we're seeing war. Revelation chapter 13, the those that worship the beast, who is like the beast and can fight against it. He will be trying to, he's going to implement a a uh, the mark of the beast and a system to wipe out and as you go through revelation 16 you talked about the kings out of the east revelation 17 the lamb is going to conquer the as satan rises up to do battle that's the final battle that we were talking about and that is the final one the battle of armageddon that will take place and that happens at the return of jesus christ as he comes back to the earth as the antichrist gathers and the false prophet gathers all those around the world to do battle against the lord so in our program today rick we looked at these events as they're unfolding it does help us to prepare to be living pure and productive in a world where we need that just on a daily basis with our families. It certainly does, Jimmy. It gives us a sense of confidence and a sense of motivation. Well, Rick, thanks for joining with me on the program today and doing the legwork of all the interviews and, and, and you know investigating the events that we need to keep our eyes on. And we look forward to next week when we talk about Christmas. We're going to rehearse some of our memories of Christmas over the years, especially in the Middle East and with our family. Rick, until next week, you know, as we watch the events that are unfolding, we can't help but say that the rapture of the church is not far away. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.